currently doing a series, uh, uh, just an Advent series, a classic Christmas series. And this morning, we're going to take a look at a passage in Isaiah chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, please open it there. Um, If you're visiting this morning, if you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one sitting near you in the back of a pew. And there's an index right up front that will get you to the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah chapter 12. Let's read the chapter through. It's short, only six verses, and then we'll pray. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. Father, Isaiah penned these words looking forward to a day that was to come, but it's the days that we live in. And so as he describes our hearts and our response this morning, I pray that you would make it all the more true of us, that we would be those inhabitants of Zion that Isaiah sees here in this passage. And as we spend this morning and the rest of this week, leading up to Christmas, reflecting on your coming, I ask God that it would be filled with true and real God-given joy. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. The word Advent means coming or arrival. And so the Advent season traditionally in the Christian church is a preparation for the celebration of the fact that Jesus came to earth. Thematically, one of the ways to approach Advent is to look at the four major themes of the Christmas story, which are hope, peace, joy, which we will look at this morning, and then finally, love. And so this morning we're looking at joy. And I think joy is one of the harder ones for us to talk about, even though it's interwoven through everything we do in Christmas. Even though we can barely sing a single carol without the mention of joy, I think when we ask the question of ourselves and other people in our time, in our day and age, what is joy, it's difficult to answer. One of my favorite preachers uh, was a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was thorough. You think it takes us a long time to move through the book of a, a book of the Bible. 
uh, his Friday night lectures on the book of Romans seven years through 14 of the 16 chapters. And if you read them, they're full of beauty and help and thought. He's influenced me greatly. But interestingly enough, coming all the way to halfway, almost the end of chapter 14, having only chapter 15 and 16, which is really just a list of shout-outs, uh, left, he retired. Seven years of effort and came up short on the end. And to be honest, part of that was health concerns. He um, had to have a pretty significant surgery and decided to retire after he began to recover. But he also felt that stopping where he did was appropriate. You see, the verse that he was preparing to teach on the next Sunday before he retired was in Romans 14 where it says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And he felt that he didn't know enough personally about joy in the Holy Spirit to teach that message. I resonate with that. I wonder sometimes. And so as we look at this this morning, I want to helpfully get a better handle on joy. Better understand how this is to be a part of the Christmas story, because it was. The reason it's in our carols is because it was in the original Christmas songs. The ones sung by angels. Glad tidings of comfort and joy, right? But what does it mean for us? And Isaiah 12 may seem a strange place to turn, but it is the climax of a short book in Isaiah, a collection of what we have as chapters 7 through 12, known often as the book of Emmanuel. And it's referred to as the book of Emmanuel because that's the name that's given to the Messiah multiple times over the course of these chapters. I want you to notice that chapter 12, verse 1, begins with the common phrase in the prophets, in that day. You see, the prophets didn't solely write about their times, but a time that was to come. And often they just give it the shorthand, that day. In that day. And so it's appropriate for us as we begin chapter 12 to say, what day? What day is Isaiah talking about here? And so I want to dial back into the book of Emmanuel and show you the foundation of chapter 12 so we understand the context. As I mentioned, this book, this short book, chapters 7 through 12, has many prophecies of the Messiah. Look at the first one back in chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. Look again with me at chapter 9. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder. The rod of the oppressor you have broken is on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult 
and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then look at chapter 11. Verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Listen to this in verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall pray over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Notice, just side note, verse 10 begins with, in that day. That's the repeated refrain that flows through the rest of chapter 11 and into chapter 12. In what day? The day when the branch of Jesse comes and there is righteousness and peace. When even at the animal kingdom level, there will be a restoration of things as they were intended. A place without violence. A place where righteousness is accomplished. This is what Isaiah is looking for. This is what the book of Emmanuel is about. And although these things have not yet been completed, they have begun in the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus is that child who's born. Jesus is that son who was given. Jesus is the one whose name is Emmanuel, God with us. And so on that foundation, chapter 12 turns to us. Not to what God's going to do in Jesus Christ, but what we're going to do in response to Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 12 again in verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. And so what we see is effectively worship. It's laid out in different ways. It begins with thanksgiving. It, it includes later on the singing of praises and even callings for all the nations of the earth to sing praises. But I want you to notice the context. Joy runs through this passage. It's mentioned twice in these six short verses. But I want you to notice its primary foundation at the end of verse 2 there. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. You see, the context that Isaiah is writing to is a time of danger. It's a time of disobedience. Isaiah's entire book is written primarily as a warning, a sign calling Israel to turn around because their current behavior is going against the grain of their covenant with God and leading to destruction. 
but he looks to the day beyond the coming of Babylon, beyond the destruction of Jerusalem, beyond the uh, exile of Israel out of the land to a time when God will regather them and continue his plan to send the Messiah as he promised to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to the patriarchs. And so for them, when, it, when they read, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me, they'd think primarily about this exile, about restoration to the land, about the consequences of their sin and the coming of these uh, armies of Babylon to remove them as a chastening of God and then restoring them to the land. But significantly, we looking back can realize the greater reality of these things. As was shared this morning, the, the focal point of God's wrath and anger is not found in the destruction of Jerusalem and Babylon. It's found in the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus came and was born, but he came to die and to die on our behalf. And any time we think about the cross of Christ, we need to hold two paradoxical ideas in tension. One is that our personal condition, our own behavior, the depth of our rebellion and our disobedience is so serious that Jesus had to die. And so when we look at the cross, we recognize significantly the horror of our own need. But also, when we look at that cross and recognize that it's not just a sacrifice made on our behalf, but a willing sacrifice. That God had a plan to deal with this from the beginning, that he sent Jesus to die for us, then we recognize that in the cross of Christ, it's not just that, we, uh, that Jesus had to die for us, but also that he was willing to die for us. And so we find this intermingling in the cross of Christ of both God's anger his righteous anger, and his love. That's the primary foundation of our joy as Christians. It's why our celebration of Christmas is always looking forward to the celebration of Easter. And it cannot be disconnected. The birth of a baby is always a time for joy, but the joy for us as Christians goes deeper than that. It goes from the fact that although we were in self-caused dire straits, God did something about it. And that changed not merely our present circumstances. It didn't just impact our psychology. It, it, it changed our eternal fate. It restored our relationship with the God who is light, the God who is life, and the God who is love. It fixed what was broken. And so that is the foundation that's given here. But I want you to notice this morning that the salvation, what Jesus accomplished for us, what we receive simply by trusting in him, leads to joy, but is not joy in and of itself. This is what I mean. Look at verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord, of God, Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Just those simple two sentences are full of facts, full of truths. God has become my salvation. The Lord is my strength. I will trust and be not afraid. There's facts there, but there's something more than that. 
there's joy. In fact, it probably comes out the clearest when it says, not just that the Lord God is my strength, but also my song. What I sing about. What leads me to, uh, to proclaim, to praise. What we see here is not merely salvation as something that happened for us, but salvation as experience. Jonathan Edwards tried to, con- uh, to communicate the difference talking about honey. He said there's a difference between knowing factually honey is sweet and tasting its sweetness. Joy is the savoring of our salvation. It's not just knowing it. It's not just standing on it. It's not merely intellectual. It's an overflow of that reality uh, that opens our mouths in praise, that fills our heart with a sense that we call joy. And I think it's helpful right now to contrast the difference between happiness and joy. And in some sense, it's a difference of grade or shade and not a difference entirely. But here's some clear differences. Happiness only grows in the soil of good circumstances. Happiness stems from when things are well. Happiness comes from a place where you get what you want, where nothing takes away what you need, where circumstances are balanced. When you open a present, you are happy. But joy can even grow in the soils of adversity. It's not... It's not that there isn't some sort of overlap. It's not that there can't be joy in the midst of good tidings and good happenings. But it's more hardy than that as a crop. It's not so seasonal that it needs springtime to grow or even to flourish. It can grow in the depths of the desert. It can grow right up through the hardened soil of winter. Joy is something deeper. It's something more significant. If you don't believe me, read the Psalms. Read the Psalms and reflect on the lives of the psalmist, on the life of David, and the things that he's going through, and yet the constant proclamation of joy. Look at Jesus' life, whereas the prophets refer to him as a man of sorrows. Isaiah himself says that in Isaiah 53. We see his life as one that's full of joy and celebration. No one in the history of earth lived like Jesus did. Experienced the fullness and the abundance of the life that Jesus lived, despite the fact that it was full of adversity and rejection, sleepless nights, and culminates in the crucifixion. Joy is deeper than happiness. Also, significantly, and this is still something I'm chewing on, happiness can happen with stuff. Joy always seems to involve others. Happiness is something that you can make on your own. You can go out and buy something you want, and that will make you happy. Like I said, there's an overlap here, and so you open a present, and the present is something you want, and that makes, it ha- makes you happy. But it's not until you reflect on the giver of that present that you discover joy. It's not just that I got what I want. It's that this particular person gave this to me. That's the room, the, the um, foundation of joy. This is actually something that everybody understands about Christmas. If we forget it in other places, this is a place where we remember it. I don't know if you, like me, have spent most of December watching the holiday classics, but 
I imagine many of you have. What is the bottom line? When those movies answer, what is Christmas about, what do they always answer? Christmas is about being together. That's always where it lands. That's the foundation that all of us get that's woven into Christmas. It's about togetherness. In fact, what is the proclamation of Isaiah? Who is it who would come on the day that we call Christmas? God with us. There's a relational aspect to joy. There's a deeper aspect to joy. And there's an intensity aspect to joy. We regularly say, I couldn't be happier. And that probably, for some of us, is true, right? All the boxes are ticked. ticked. Our happiness tank is full. There's nothing beyond that. But joy is inexhaustible. In fact, to the degree that C.S. Lewis always saw joy as more longing than fulfillment. He saw joy as a reminder of what was coming and not an experience of what is. He saw it as a foretaste of the feast that God had promised wherever we experience it. And so we enjoy our family. But there is a greater and more permanent family that is to come. That family now can be broken, hampered by sin, interrupted by death. But this longing we have for permanency and unbreakable fellowship is real in its longing because it's real in its fulfillment. And C.S. Lewis said that's joy. In other words, the story that the Bible tells, the taste that you've had of joy in your life is only the beginning. Whereas happiness, to some degree, you can actually tap out. You can scrape the bottom of the barrel. You can find its outer limits. Not so with joy. God can make us happy. But a relationship with God is inexhaustible joy. And this is a beautiful thing. It's something that we should desire as human beings because happiness is fleeting. It's temporary. It comes and it goes. But what the Bible promises us is something that's so significant, a gift that is so profound that it can be an inexhaustible source of joy in our life. And I think all of us would confess this morning. If we got to choose between a joyless life and a joyful one, we'd go joyful. It's like the, um, the Eddie Izzard joke about cake or death, right? We're all going to choose cake. It's an easy question. But the problem is we are terribly capable of disarming our ability to enjoy. And so we need reminders like this this morning of the foundation of joy, of the depth of joy, of the reality of joy that's available for us. And once again, let me remind you of its focal point that it comes down to this coming of Jesus Christ and the transition that comes with that. Here we get another difference, another distinguishing between salvation as a fact, as a reality that we live in, and joy. Notice how it's put in verse 3. It says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Is that a one-time thing or a continuous thing? He, d he doesn't say here, with joy you will reflect on when God quenched your thirst, past tense. 
He says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And remember that Isaiah, like the entire Jewish population, was living in a land where water was a significant, difficult necessity, where it made the difference between life and death in a way that we don't generally think about. Right? Isaiah couldn't walk into his house and turn on the tap. He was reliant upon finding sources of water. And if those were, ex- were exhausted, you moved. And so this picture of salvation as water might sound simple to us because we take that for granted, but we're talking about the liquid life that we all need to survive. And what he says here is, with joy you will draw water from the wells of your salvation. Let me ask you this question this morning if you're a Christian. Is that your experience of your Christian life, of regularly and routinely drawing waters with joy, partaking of your salvation, not merely resting in it as a closed fact, as something that's been done to you, but savoring it regularly and consistently. And the incredible thing is, you can regularly draw waters from the, uh, from the wells of salvation and not experience joy. You can take all the aspects of what God has given us in Jesus Christ, the touch points, if you will, in our life, and go about them so machinistically, so routinely, so distractedly, that you can't say that you're living a life with joy. That your relationship with God is one of joy. It's just one of habit. It's like drawing bucket after bucket, and you've just got piles of buckets, and you never taste the sweet water from the living springs. That's what joy is. It's savoring the salvation. It's actually enjoying what God has done. Listen, the cross of Christ, our restoration to God was essential. But it doesn't stop there. It was for a reason. Why? Because God is the most satisfying relationship available to us. Some of us, I think, sometimes we live like orphans who were adopted and we just have that certificate of adoption and we never talk to our parents. We never enjoy that relationship, the one that we've longed for and looked for, the one that loves us enough to never leave us and yet loves us enough to never let us be. What Isaiah is reflecting on here is overflowing, overflowing, overwhelming, continuous, and regular, it is joy. But here's another really interesting thing. When we read in verse 2, behold, God is my salvation, it's not in the singular, but in the plural. That whole verse, verse 2 there, is entirely sung collectively, stated collectively. Isaiah isn't speaking for himself. He's not even speaking for yourself. He's speaking for us. And that's another aspect of joy. You see, God saves us as individuals, but we enjoy that salvation together. And once again, this is something that we understand about Christmas. It's something that we recognize. In fact, it's one of the things that's so significant about joy is that it's something we want to share. You can be selfishly happy. You can't be selfishly joyful. When you really, deeply, and thoroughly experience joy in something, you invite other people into that joy. You seek to share it. 
And so we gather as Christians, not just because this is the place where we can hear what God has done for us, not just because this is the rhythm that God's called us to in our life, but we gather with one another. We rejoice with one another. And I'll give you one of the reasons why that's so helpful. It's because all of us have different roads we walk with different potholes and detours. The cadence of each of our lives is different. The highs and lows is different. When we gather together and we share our joy with one another, sometimes we share joy with the joyless. Sometimes we remind one another of the goodness of God. Have you ever had those occasions in life where someone spoke so obviously and clearly to you, it was like you were wearing blinders and suddenly you could see again? You see, the body of Christ is essential in the Christian life. It's not just that the Christian life is better together, it's that the Christian life is possible together. And a major aspect of that is joy. Some of this was probably happiness, but a good deal was joy. But the first year of my life as a Christian, my face ached. It ached from smiling. By the time I got to high school, I was such a cynic that any pleasure I took was always a twisted pleasure. And at best, it was a half smile. But when I was around Christians and I started to understand why they were happy, what God had done in their life, what he'd done in my life, and when I just spent time with them, Honestly, I remember going to bed with a sore mouth from smiling. It was one of the things that drew me to the church first was I'd never met people who were so consistently happy, and it's not because they were more wealthy than me or because their life was more stable than mine or because their bodies functioned better than mine or because they were still young. I had, I had the one-up on every aspect, and yet they had something I didn't. It was joy. It's contagious. And there's another aspect of joy this morning. Notice verse 4, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. There too we have a change. Do you see it? It's us speaking, but it's not just us praising God, referring to God as our strength and our song and our salvation. It's us calling others to that same thing. Joy is inherently evangelistic. We, just, we don't merely share with those who have, we share with those who don't. Think of the transformation that Scrooge goes through in A Christmas Carol. Right When he wakes up the next morning, he throws open the windows and he asks that boy what day it is and he discovers it's not too late, that today is Christmas. Does he keep that to himself? Does he go, okay, thank you, and shutter his doors? Does he just enjoy what we already talked about and head off to the Cratchits because they know the meaning of Christmas and now he can enjoy it with them? No, he proclaims it loudly in the streets. Joy always does that. You see, oftentimes we think of Christian witness or evangelism or telling people about Jesus as a task we must do and you can't really get around that. The Bible's pretty clear in the fact that we are called to give testimony to what God has done, to be witnesses, that one of the reasons why we're still here on this earth is to share with people what God has done in Jesus Christ. But when we understand the joy of what God has done in Jesus Christ, 
it's not merely a task, it's an overflow of the reality. Joy shares, it proclaims, it calls others to partake and invites. That's what joy does. Look again at verse 4. Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, proclaim, why? That his name is exalted. Verse 5. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Joy shares because it can't keep its mouth closed. There's a place in the Psalms where the psalmist is having a hard day, a difficult time. Enemies, like we often read in the Psalms, are closing in. And he says this, he says, Open up my lips and my mouth shall declare your praise. Have you ever thought about that sentence? The idea here is that there's just a barrier, and if the barrier is removed, it's, it's like when the stereo is on and then you just turn the speaker on and out comes the volume. That's how joy works in our life. If telling people about Jesus is something that's a burden for you or just not a facet of your life, it's not primarily or solely an issue of disobedience that you need to just, you know, shake it off and do what you're supposed to do. Have you forgotten the goodness of your salvation? Have you neglected the realities? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? God didn't give the world an advertisement. He could have. He could have writ the gospel large in a neon sign hung in space for all to see with every rotation of the earth. But he didn't. The postman who carries the message is also a recipient. The mission of the church is driven by joy. There's one last aspect of joy that I want to finish on this morning, and it's back in verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Now, a side note, that final phrase there, the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation, we find that multiple times in the Bible, that exact same phrase. That's the song that Miriam sings when the Red Sea is parted, when the Egyptians are destroyed, and Israel is delivered finally and fully from their reign. And th that is the, you know, the threshold of before that day they were slaves, after that day they are free. And Isaiah quotes that here. If you want an understanding of joy, that celebration was one of joy. Life-altering no turning back joy. But it's the also, the also the one that we find in Psalm 118, which most scholars believe is the psalm that was written and sung at the day when the temple was rebuilt, in the days of Ezra, in the days of Nehemiah. It's the one that over and over says, for his love endures forever, repeats it over and over. How do you sing something so monotonous? Joy. Because every time it's true. But what was going on at the rebuilding of the temple? Israel had experienced the wrath of God, the consequences of their sin, and then had graciously been brought back into the land, the temple that was essential to their worship of God and their connection with both God's promises uh, and the practice 
of a life with God was restored. Joy. But in both those occasions, it's he has become my salvation. Think of the way that that's parsed. Think of the way that that's said. He has become my salvation. You see, there's one last aspect that is a common trait of joy, and that's surprise. It doesn't say here, I have made God my salvation, does it? It says he has become my salvation. Do you hear the surprise in that? You see, Israel in Egypt was desperate and dire, and they didn't always believe that God was going to come through. They were almost as critical of their leader Moses and his plan as the Egyptians were, as Pharaoh was himself. As they stood on the banks, surrounded by their enemies, with the Red Sea behind them, they were pretty sure that was it. But that day, God became their salvation. Israel spent years out of the land of Israel, reflecting on their own sins, recognizing they got exactly what they deserved. But as they stood in the temple courts with a rebuilt temple and wept for joy, they could proclaim again, he has become our salvation. They didn't come up with a plan to get back to Israel. They didn't set things right. They didn't restore something. This was something that God had done. He has become my salvation is true of us. Because before you were born, before you had racked up the full account of God's wrath, before you came up with a plan to fix things, before you were even aware of the problem, God was, and he did something about it. He became your salvation, not because you asked with the right attitude, not because you met him halfway, not because you kept up your side of the bargain. In fact, all of those things are the exact opposite. Not because you hoped or believed or dreamed. Our salvation is not rooted in anything in us, but in God himself and who he is. And out of that, who he is, is what he's done. And while we were rebels, while we were sinners, before we were born, before we had a plan, beyond our wildest dreams and imaginings, Jesus became our salvation. Understand that. Embrace that. Soak in that. Enjoy. Enjoy. When we look at ourselves this morning, I don't know where you find yourself. But I think it's appropriate to answer the question as we close. Okay, that sounds great. It makes sense. I have memories times where the joy was present, where it was there, what do I do when it's not? And the answer I want to give is somewhat paradoxical because it's two-sided, like most truths are. The first, the first is taken from the Psalms itself. In Psalm 51, David has blown it. He's committed adultery. He's used his position of power as king to sleep with another man's wife who can't say no because he's the king. She's gotten pregnant, and to cover it up, he's come up with a plot to put her husband to death so that she can be married quick enough so that nobody can question the legitimacy of the pregnancy. 
And from all accounts, it looks like he gets away with it until God sends Nathan the prophet to confront him in his sin. And it's just after that, after that revelation that God knows, after that revelation of consequence for sin, after that revelation of forgiveness being available to David that he writes Psalm 51. And I just want to draw your attention to one line this morning. In the midst of his sinfulness, he prays, restore to me the joy of my salvation. If it is God who gave us the foundation for joy, should it be any surprise that he's the source for the restoration of our joy? James says, oftentimes we have not because we ask not. But there's another side. And I don't know how to balance these two things. I just think they're very clear. This one comes from the Apostle Paul as he's writing to the church in Philippi. And Paul, in that letter, is an example of joy. He's in prison. Things are not going his way. Some people are taking advantage of the fact that he's in prison to build their own ministry and defame Paul. And in the middle of it, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You see, rejoice and joy go together, right? But the interesting thing is being joyful is not necessarily something you can just do. Rejoicing is. Rejoicing is a part that you can play whether you feel it or not. And don't mistake me this morning. This is not fake it till you feel it. This is proclaiming with your mouth what you know in your mind until your heart feels it. Rejoicing is not based on fairy tales. It's based on facts that you no longer feel. Rejoicing embodies the truths of what God has done for you until you recognize and see those truths afresh. And so there's a tension in these things. If you are living a joyless Christian life, then by all means, ask. But also, proclaim. Rejoice. Sing. If you're not a Christian this morning, please forgive us for not always reflecting the full weight of the reality of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Like everyone else on earth, we get distracted and we neglect the best things in our life. Like everyone else on earth, we settle for lesser goods instead of greater goods. But that doesn't change the depth of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and what's available to you. And when Jesus says, all who are thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his heart will stem up a fountain of living water. That offer is for you. Even if today, sitting here, you don't understand what Jesus has done because you've never plumbed the depths of your own sinfulness, he has become your salvation. And we invite you this morning to enter into the joy that we have tasted because we proclaim, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, it's clear to me this morning that the trajectory of our life as Christians, the goal of where you're taking us, what you're doing 
in the midst of us is a development of joy. That our life on earth is a preparation to enjoy you forever. And so I pray, God, that we would practice. I ask, Lord, that we would demonstrate our faith by taking you at your word. And that we would proclaim your goodness to ourselves and to one another and to the world. And that your goodness would overflow into new songs in our heart. And that your salvation would fill us with joy.